I don't know if your ego problem. If you want to do an introduction, I mean, I don't care. No, I don't, but I, I... No, I will do it in a Californian way. If it will enrich your self-experience... I'll tell you. It will, it will, it will, I'll lose my credibility if I succeed. But I have, to, I have to apologize. Yesterday, I did a really rubbish job of chairing because I didn't leave any time for questions. Because he was mm. being really brilliant. So, um, today, you promised you would give, you would let time for questions, yeah? No, not only this. I is the lady here who provoked me into it. I oh, there was a lady sitting there who is one of my standard <laughs> spy. spy. Yes, interrogators, whatever. Probably working for MI6, and she uh, she said, "Could we? I could we begin with the no, debate?" No, don't do that because then. No, no, no. I will. Uh, I mean, you know, I it will not. You know, the only thing that is endless here are my... You know, as I told you, it's my old joke. I'm for Plato's late dialogues. Dialogue means one guy talks all the time. The other guy says every five, ten minutes, by Zeus, so it is. And so <laughs> on. That's my idea of a dialogue, you know. Uh, okay, so uh, I just wanted to tell you, because I was talking about it with friends. I'm not... I don't mean this as any kind of... a. Uh, how do you call it, blow hitting beneath the belt or what to Jacqueline Rose. But I would like to hear at this point your opinion, because you, did you notice the point she made that the way I described that unfortunate Canadian torso, that that's too much for her. But the more I think about it, the more I claim that Maybe I was wrong at other levels, but that at that point I was right. I don't expect the logic of, you know, we shouldn't talk in that way publicly about it. Because I claim that when we talk about women, oppressed, exploitation and so on, are you aware that if we don't talk openly about it, in what way we automatically censor it? I mean... Like, I, I think the only way to feel the horror is at least in words to describe it. I don't see anything emancipatory or whatever in not describing it in this brutal way. Because also, for example, uh, when people talk about torture and so on, I think it has, although it's disgusting, a good pedagogic function to describe sometimes tortures in detail, because the nice surprise there is that you discover how even countries which are supposed to be, we identify as more civilized, gentle, what they are able to do. Did I mention this Dutch case here? I think I did. Water. No. I read in a book of history of uh, Netherlands, Dutch colonialism, that their torture was this one. They fastened your body to some wall, and then they put like that water was dripping into you, your head was fixed. The whole point was that while in order to breathe, you had at the same time to swallow water. And it usually lasted two, three days for you to die. And you get all bloated, water everywhere. It must have been horrible. You know, you were just swallowing water. And the horrible thing that I read is that uh, 
they organized in some colonies this as a spectacle, you know. People watching, making bets, how long will the guy survive, and so on and so on. Okay, maybe I'm wrong, but, you know, I lived under the impression that the Dutch people are especially gentle, and so on and so on. Nobody is. Every, everybody can do horrors. Okay, so, uh, so the lady is not here then. There was a lady, don't you remember if you were here yesterday? Yeah, who said, oh, why don't we begin with? Okay, but nonetheless, since I talked so much, okay, I will. Sorry? There's other people who wanted to ask questions. Sorry, that's not? There's other people who had questions yesterday and I didn't give them a chance to. Like, okay, let's do this, but let's really now, this may, after me talking all the time, this may sound ironic and so on. But n nonetheless, like, let's try to limit it in some way because I have a certain line of thought to develop. Okay, I'm very bad in uh, all my racist prejudices, you know, and sex prejudices, whom I select. So try to be aggressive. Let's do the first round. You are not trying to sketch your bag, but it is a question. Okay, well, immediately, just to make it sure. Is it only uh, you? You? You. Okay. One, two, three, four. Let's keep it. Okay. So that this is the first one. Okay, please. Yesterday you described the ABCs of Hegel's dialectic as the objectivity of contradictions in things themselves that are the result of gaps that are irreducible in contradictions that are inherent in the normative self-adequation of concepts. As I'm sure you know, in classical logic, only any unresolved contradiction results in a trivial inference because since any consequence may follow from a contradiction, no single determinate consequence may be inferred from irreducible contradictions. Yet you clearly wish to infer some determinate third position Hegel interpretation of politics, partly by eternally presupposing the virtual and vanishing mediation of the Christian moment. To avoid triviality, should you not more radically also affirm that the gaps of every contradiction should be resolved in and through the absolute paradox of the Trinity, which, as Hegel suggests, open gaps and resolves contradictions within itself? First, I know what Hegel claims, this opening gaps, resolving contradiction, and so on. But here, one, one has to be, as you know, maybe better than me, very precise. But uh, could you just repeat that point? Maybe I didn't get it correctly about that triviality. What did you mean exactly yeah, so by that? The explosion of pseudoscotus says that if there's ever a contradiction in an inference, then any consequence may follow. Ah, you mean this, what I thought, yes. No, I would say here, I don't have time to go into it, but you know, for... Again, for Hegel, what he calls contradiction is not just a general statement in the sense of, you know, you can say anything, this is white and black, this is hot and cold or whatever. No, contradiction in Hegel, I claim, means something very precise which occurs at a singular moment of a system or whatever, which is, it's, let's call it... A, let's call it its symptomal point, so that it's not that then you can say everything about that. It's a very precise intervention. For example, what would have been a naive example, I even wanted to mention it afterwards, this would have been a very nice, I, I, and just to go further, let's not go into it today, but I'm well aware of how one way to redeem Hegel by some analytic philosophers and others, 
close to common sense, but I'm not dismissing them, this is not a value statement, is to try to do other subtle distinctions, claiming that what Hegel means by contradiction is not, in this naive sense, radical contradiction. You can claim whatever you want, opposite things about... Uh, it's, uh, so they try to save Hegel in this way, claiming that in a deeper sense... Hegel nonetheless respects the Aristotelian A is A and so on. No, I think Hegel is... Okay, let me give you an example that I wanted to return to, and maybe if we will have time, I will... It's a classical one, from Desad. Sade's vision was, I'm putting it consciously in very primitive terms, uh, screw the world of ideas, higher, blah, blah, blah. What matters is radical pleasure deprived of all transcendence, of all deeper meaning, and we have the right to go, I'm simplifying it to the utmost, but that's the idea, and we have the right to go to the end in it. So, in other words, screw any form of transcendence, affirm purely this earthly life here. Now, the intelligent critique of Sad by some, even uh, uh, religious people is, and they make a correct observation, which you find also among others already in Adorno and Horkheimer and Lacan, of course, is that you can feel this if you read Sad. I did read him, but not a lot. I find it, sorry, it's my Farber problem. I find Sad extremely boring and unreadable. Is that, like, take a work like uh, 120 days in Sodom. All these ultra-extreme variations of sadism, but isn't it that this would be a proper materialist critique of Sad? What you lose in this radical reduction of transcendence, we should focus on Bolly, is precisely the wealth and density of earthly experience. Sad end, ends, in, for example, in 120 days in Sodom, in, in what is a purely spiritualized in the sense of abstract without flesh intellectual game, you know, like you take one cow, one dog, two boys, one woman, they screw this way, then you change, like the idea being that, uh, and, and again intelligent Catholics know how to play this game, that if you take away transcendence, you, what you lose is not transcendence, deeper meaning, but what you lose is precisely the depth of authentic uh, sexual, even sensual experience. So in other ways, by pursuing too directly the goal of asserting this terrestrial life, what you lose is precisely this terrestrial life. And that's it. I don't see here any consequence that you can say whatever you want or whatever and so on and so on. I think it's something like this that Hegel is aiming at. And I think he's uh, simply right, which is why to go to prolong this line of, of debate, uh, that's why I think I was wrong in my appreciation of Tarkovsky. The movie director isn't this what his greatness, with which I disagree, but nonetheless, is about. Uh, in Tarkovsky's films, spirituality is not up. It's you reach, 
you gain spiritual experience by fully immersing yourself into materiality in its dirtiest. Like his maybe most beautiful film, because I read now in a new book um, on Tarkovsky, and incidentally, he wasn't an idiot. I recently spoke with Tom Ladd or whatever. He organizes those small uh, 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 movie festivals in Telluride, a little bit avant-garde, and Tarkovsky was his host just before his death. And he told me that Tarkovsky confirmed this to him, that he was the great victim of uh, communist oppression, blah, blah. But that was the tragedy of his last year. So he had to admit that films like uh, Stalker, Solaris, he was able to make them only in Soviet Union. No one would give him money to do such a film in the West. Okay, but let's know it. No, if you take a beautiful film, Stalker, how are this mystical experience, spiritual stage there? It's usually even mud, earth, dirty water. You immerse yourself into it. That's spirituality. And I think this is even a deep insight of some speculative philosophers. For example, for example, Schelling knew this perfectly. Schelling said that radical evil is much more spiritual than goodness. Because goodness has this benevolence towards materiality. You know, we are all part of it. Well, evil is this abstract, pale, intellectual hatred of reality. This is a very deep insight, I think, that, again, uh, uh, evil is purely spiritual category. Which is why I think we should totally abandon this primitive idea of, uh, of uh, that the source of evil is fall into materiality. No. The original gesture of evil is when you try in the wrong way to, to withdraw from materiality. But okay, let's not... But okay, I know I didn't really answer your claim, but you see at least the direction that I would have gone. That what Hegel calls contradiction is just this basic reversal. How? By pursuing something, you lose it. So it is stronger than antagonisms and so on, because the thing itself does turn into its opposite. But it's not contradiction in the, in the sense that you can say everything you want and so on and so on. I mean, what Hegel means by contradiction is another thing. Ah, the same remark was made, for example, by I quote in some of my books by Gilbert Keith Chesterton against atheism. I don't agree with him fully, but it's an intelligent remark where he said that, uh, he says that uh, the result of materialism is precisely, again, the same point almost as apropos Sade, is precisely the loss of wealthy material life and so on. Uh, but then uh, I think that we can say the same thing, similar reversal, with today's religious fundamentalism, that what gets lost in fundamentalism, I claim, is not so much, uh, I don't know, innocent pleasure, ordinary life, which is dismissed by them as sinful. What gets lost is the, the authentic religious dimension itself. Uh, it, okay, we could go on, but so you see what I mean? This is a very specific reversal that I call contradiction. When a thing, by pursuing a thing up to its end, its logic, it turns into its 
it turns into its opposite, like a classic example now, which is a little bit too simplified. I don't accept it, but you you want uh, you fight for freedom and you end up like Americans do, advocating torture as a means to. It's something along these lines. And again, I think that you don't end up again in any kind of uh, uh, this uh, trivial state where you can say anything. Again, it's a very specific point in the system. Okay, sorry. Let's go on. Where was it? Yes, yes. So yesterday you quoted Derrida saying that he knows nothing closer to his notion of deconstruction than... I can even tell you... Not because, yes, than yes. Aufhebung. He says this is fine, correct, in glass. Okay, so yeah. as I would assume, you would not simply equate deconstruction to sublation. I'm wondering what you would see is the most important difference or differences between the two notions? Oh, that's a good, nasty question, yeah. No, uh, 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 I'm sorry, this is at you. Stand up and address the working, address the working class there. Yeah. All I'm asking is for him to describe the differences he sees between uh, Derrida's deconstruction and Hegelian sublation, which yesterday he drew a connection between. No, uh, what I'm aiming at, my God, again, I would have to go into it in detail. Uh, first, uh, I think critiques of Hegelian Aufhebung, who claim Aufhebung is a moment of idealization. Something is annihilated, but its essence is conserved and moved at a higher level. And then the usual game to play against Hegel is to say, no, but there is always something that resists sublation, some inert moment, and so on and so on. I don't think this is what, for the reasons I, don't, I cannot go now in detail, I don't think this exactly is what Hegel calls, uh, uh, what Hegel calls Aufhebung. Sublation. Uh, this is a pseudo problem for, he for Hegel's standpoint, this idea of, but there is an element that resists. What I tried to demonstrate, maybe in a confused way, in some of my books, that Hegel is, and this would be one point that I think is maybe, I'm not sure, because it's very sad, I'm not sure, and I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't uh, clarify it with Derrida. You know, something very sad happened. We had kind of a misunderstanding, bad relations, and at the end, we both were sending these SMSs, not in a literal way, like getting closer, and uh, then it ended up, I already threw the lady who, with whom I don't agree theoretically, but okay, she is not bad. By she is not bad, I mean, she has the endless patience of suffering uh, and enduring my extreme bad taste remarks, you know, Avital Ronel. Because she was with Derrida in the last month of his illness. And so uh, I wonder if I didn't find the traces of it, if Derrida, no. The beautiful thing about Hegel is that, for example, it's a trivial example that they use it again and again, but my, that the idea that something resists sublation, an inert moment that remains, is central for Hegel. This is what makes the point. Let's take the logic of state in Hegel. Hegel says in modernity, in modern society, 
you are a self-producing individual. You are not simply what you are. You have to, this is the freedom of civil society. You are free in society, on the market. You produce yourself. You are not what you are. Your immediate identity has to be aufgehoben. You are through working on yourself and so on. But then, in a wonderful, typically dialectical turnaround, Hegel adds that that's why a king is needed. And what is a king? Precisely a natural inertia that cannot be aufgehoben. Because as Hegel emphasized, king, in the sense of Hegelian monarchy, is a paradoxical direct overlapping of the highest ideal power, you know, king, the top of the state, and so on. But at the same time, it's clear to Hegel, king is what he or she, queen, is immediately by birth. There is no self-mediation, no work there, and so on. So Hegel saw this at different levels in a wonderful way, how you can, Aufhebung is never complete. It needs an unaufhebbar, an an element that uh, resists and so on. So again, the way, maybe I will try to put, not losing too much time, one way, but maybe you know more about Derrida. I'm very open here. I'm ready to change my opinion because it's not so much, my God, I'm nonetheless, even if I'm a stupid clown, some type of philosopher, which means more than names. What means to thee is the problem, the thing itself. So when I attack Derrida, attack, okay, uh, debate with him, I'm trying to describe two positions, my, my position and that one. And uh, maybe I'm wrong with attributing that position to Derrida, but it's okay. In this sense, you know, I'll try to put it as simple as possible. Let's take the notion of subject. For Derrida, subject is always decentered, difference, and so on, and so on, uh, uh, open, blah, blah, blah. My point would be just to make one step further and say, not only is subject always uh, difference, decentered, and so on, but subject is the name of this decenterment. You know, to make this subtle shift. And I'm even ready to go here to the end, following Hegel, and claim that it's not enough to say identity is always undermined by difference, but that, and Hegel says this clearly in a wonderful way, identity is a name for a radical difference. You see, it's just this, how to call it, uh, self-reflexive self term, where you no longer have the external opposition, let's say, presence, absence, and then you know, ooh, there is no pure presence, all presence is uh, all presence is undermined by traces of otherness and so on. But to claim that the ultimate otherness is this spectral presence itself, you know, where here I know that I would agree with Derrida because at some point he become aware of it. Let's return to another point, which is classical Derridian. The opposition of voice and writing. Voice as s'entendre parler, pure self-presence, and voice always undermined by writing, and so on and so on. But, and Derrida has some hints somewhere, that, but at the same time, the utter 
otherness, impenetrability, is that of a meaningless voice itself. And that's what I tried to develop in some of my books years ago, <coughs> how it's not, <coughs> and again, I checked up with Avital Ronel, and she told me that Derrida agrees with this point, that that's the mystery of the history of music. It's almost the inverted Derridaan story of the history of the West as the history of the, not oppression, but more control, the excess of writing. No, in the history of music, it's not so much voice that should control writing. It's writing that should control the voice. The fear, I'm sorry if I repeat my old stuff, but just to get the point. The fear of entire history of musical theory. Did, are you aware of this? Uh, my friend Mladen Dolar, who wrote that wonderful book, Voice and Nothing More, he found all these quotes. The, le, the earliest, what we can call from today's perspective, aesthetic norm pres prescription in the history of humanity is, I think, some ancient Chinese, I mean, aesthetic norm prescription, is some ancient Chinese, uh, uh, I don't know what, edict of some king, whatever, which says, uh, beware of free singing, singing should be controlled. And again, you have this fear, you should read this. This is the other side of uh, Plato's logocentrism. What Plato says about music in his Republic. It's incredible, it's the primordial fear. He says that if you allow free singing, you risk to lose everything. People will become wild like apes. All social edifices will disintegrate and so on. What he fears is precisely this pure singing which becomes a kind of a self-reproducing loop of pleasure where the relation to meaning, to, to otherness disappears. And, but at the same time, Plato, as it were, read Derrida and knew what supplement was, because at the same time that he attacks this, no, he says openly, like, no singing in my free state, singing is irrational, and there, this is so interesting, he says, rational speech is needed to control voice, but it's clear that there are subtle references to writing there, you know, that his idea is, Speech, which no longer is firmly rooted in articulated meaning, meaning, as a rule, articulated in writing, gets falls into its own trap and a kind of a self-referential incestuous madness just reproduces itself. Okay, the first interesting thing here is to see how constant this motive is up to the end. By this I mean up to our times. For example, you have this in... Plato, this absolute fear of free singing. It's the end of civilized order. Then, as we all know, the medieval church had the same problem early, against polyphony. The idea was order, and maybe you know these jokes, I use them in my books, how uh, their fear was that if, when singing, you don't closely follow the rational order of words, devil intervenes. And they had this subtle hermeneutics where they describe how even if you appear to praise God, devil is there. For example, this one standard medieval example, let's say you have a religious song, oh, our Lord, we celebrate your goodness. 
And then you think you are religious if you emphasize the word Lord or God. Oh, my God. But you address, oh, my God. Oh, oh, oh. No. Ah, devil is here. You know, you come close to the... And so it's... Uh, again, the whole medieval times were obsessed by keeping control here. Now things go further. In mod early modernity, for example, in the French Revolution, even my beloved Jacobins, for them... Religion was obscene. Their bad guy were the castratos. No, that was for them nightmare. And they basically returned to Plato. Plato claimed that the only singing that should be allowed is uh, military songs. You see, Plato was a Deridean. He knew that singing is something, literally, the Deridean supplement. It's dangerous, but you need it. You know, ideal military unit would need no songs. It's just... You give orders, you shoot. And sometimes this is said, I'm sorry if I improvise a little bit, in a wonderful way. Like in Yugoslavia, we had the great fat guy, you remember, you don't remember, the presi President Tito, no? I remember his last visit to Slovenia, where he came and then he died there in a hospital. And, you know, remember, he was close to his dad. He was absolutely sacred person. By this, I mean anything that he said, it was published. So nobody dared to censor him. And in this way, we learned some wonderful stupidities that he said. Uh, 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 half a year before his death, they asked Tito, what is for you the ideal human community, human group? And he openly said it. No, in a normal Stalinist universe, he would have been. He said a group of hunters. They asked him why. He said, because one is giving orders and the others are shooting and nobody said. <laughs> I mean, I find this so wonderful that finally he did so. The car but what I want to say is that, you see, but Tito didn't know, he didn't read Plato and Derrida that, no, unfortunately, you need singing. It's a supplement. It's an obscene supplement. And I think that, I often use these examples, that uh, the late uh, uh, this, what you find in many uh, movies about uh, marines, so-called marching chants. This is the necessary, you know what are marching chants? These songs which are, that marines sing, probably also other soldiers while marching, and they're very interesting. They're usually a mixture of, like, limericks, how do you call this? Nonsense rhymes and utter obscenities. For example, sorry, I always repeat this one, I love it, from, I think, an officer and a gentleman. Th they think, I don't know, but I was told that Eskimo pussies are rather cold. Like, it's, maybe it's true, I don't know, they spent a lot of time there in snow, but, you know, it's the utter nonsense and, and obscenity. Now, the true mystery is, and I can guarantee you it is like this, I did serve the army, uh, why do you need this, you know? The point is, you cannot have pure army discipline. It, it needs this supplement, as it were. And here there are some bad consequences, unpleasant, of what fascinated me in the army is the contradictory nature of the army collective. Maybe, I'm sorry if you already know this story. On the one hand, the army was extremely homophobic. When a soldier was discovered to be gay, he was thrown out of the army, but that one or two weeks before the bureaucracy decided were pure hell. Usually he was awakened every, day, every night and 
you know, the standard military rituals. Guys, while you're asleep, uh, surround you. One puts a pillow on your head or a cover that you don't see who they are, and others are beating you by their, by their belts and so on, something like that, you know. This is one aspect, absolute homophobia. Okay, now we can find uh, quick... Uh, 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 be in quick agreement with all those political wreck, yeah, yeah, army, homophobic, blah, blah. But it was much more ambiguous. At the same time, I never saw a human collective which was so deeply penetrated by homosexual innuendos. You made me know my standard stories. For example, in my unit, we didn't say to another soldier in the morning, Hello, good morning, but I'll smoke yours. It meant fellatio. Okay, and I will smoke yours. This was our way to say good morning or whatever. And I think this is the paradox of the army. It is homophobic, absolutely, against open gay sexuality. But at the same time, it's as if this thwarted homosexuality has to be resuscitated and just beneath the surface kept alive all the time. And I can go on telling you dirty stories, they are incredible. For example, I know when we were waiting for lunch in the line, the big joke, it's so stupid that I'm embarrassed to tell you was, people are behind you. One of them quickly put his finger into your ass, withdrew it, you turned around furious, and then <laughs> guess who it was, you know. But again, it's so embarrassing. But again, the reason I'm telling you this is to see that this is not some kind of, uh, how should I call it, uh, deconstructive, subversive. No, my point is that this excess is a necessary part of human, sorry, or not of human, of military community. It's what effectively helps it together. So uh, here, here I tend to, uh, uh, here I would just, supplement Derrida with this kind of opposites, you know, like, yes, writing undermines, uh, writing undermines uh, voice, but at the same time, the most inert, impenetrable thing is voice itself. Like that voice as the Derridan voice, this hearing oneself talking, this immediate self-transparency, is always accompanied by spectral otherness, which is a totally impenetrable voice. This spectral voice, which precisely in its inertia undermines at the most radical level possible. You know where you find some of this stuff? In Derrida's book on Marx, I think, when he speaks about ghosts and all that. Pretty good, I think, uh, Hamlet reading and so on and so on. So again, you see, it's a, how to put it, it's a much more refined difference. I'm even tempted to say that I did something like this and my Lacanian friends didn't like it, where I claim that if you try to find, to locate what can be called the elementary gesture of Freudian theory, which would be this idea of drive, not instinct, but drive. Drive is a detour. Instinct is, uh, sorry for the instinct is, I need sex, I jump on a lady. Drive is, you know, why to do it immediately, why not? You know that uh, 
the shortest pa path doesn't lead to the object. You know, the whole point is in the tool. This paradox is basically the Freudian name for drive. And uh, I ask myself, what if difference is the Derridean name for this elementary detour? And now I will tell you, and many Derridean friends of mine, from Ed Kadava to others, see the problem. Some even agree with me. The problem for me with Derrida is his ethical turn where you have ethics of deconstruction, you have democracy to come, and so on and so on. I think this does not follow automatically from his early thinking of difference. A certain ethical dimension of, you know, democracy to come or justice, justice as indeconstructible and so on and so on. If anything, I'm even more the earlier Derridean. So to conclude it with a dirty joke, I think in this room, some, uh, I don't know how many years ago, soon after Derrida's death, I hope you were not here, I gave a talk in praise of Derrida, and I cannot resist retelling extremely bad jokes. I told a joke, you know that United States, their great contribution to world culture is double, I claim. A, but I will not go into that. That I did speak 100 times about. Kent laughter, you know, the TV screen laughs for you, that's one. The other contribution are vulgar sexual jokes, but of a very specific kind. First, there are great jokes about, uh, you know, doctor, first good news, then bad news. And I will not repeat again the boring examples that I always use, like, you know, the bad news is we discovered you have cancer and you will be dead in two months. Then you ask, fuck you, what is the good news? The good news that we always dis also discovered that you have, that you have uh, uh, what is called, Alzheimer amnesia and you will forget bad news before you reach home. <laughs> so stupid. But this is not truly Hegelian Derridean. I claim that recently, my good friend Lekenin Alenka Zupancic in Slovenia told me he heard, she heard somewhere the ultimate version of this good news, bad news joke. Okay, you ask your doctor, doctor tells you I have a good news and bad news. Uh, what do you want to begin with? You say, because you are stupid, I mean me. I say, uh, uh, okay, first the good news. And you hear the good news, which are, soon you will be a household name a mortal disease will be named after you. I mean, who wants to hear bad news if this the good news, you know? This would be something, the, this would have been the Hegelian trick. So the dirty joke I learned is, okay, so you have this good news, bad news, and the other great American invention are jokes about sexual initiation joke, a man, a complete idiot, is introduced into sex by an experienced woman. And I'm sorry if you know it, but I love it. Once I attacked Badiou on these lines, that he sometimes, when he said, il faut décider, we have to decide. No, he didn't like it, my good friend, Alain Badiou. Namely, uh, there is a wonderful American joke where uh, an experienced woman introduces an idiot into sex. Okay, they undress. He says, she says, you see, this is my vagina, your penis. She masturbates him. Now you have an erection. She touches herself. You see, I'm wet now. Then she penetrates her. And then she tells him, now you start moving up, down, up, down. And after half a minute, the guy says, 
can't you finally decide? Is it in or out? Is it up and down? You know. And Derrida laughed very much. Avital told me when she told him that this is for me différence. <laughs> no. Like, the end will come, but you know. It will come by itself, you know. You just do up and down and... Uh, you don't think about the end, you know what I mean, no? So again, you see, things are the key, the crucial point is, and I forgot his name, but an American guy, I forgot his name, I'm so sad, I quote him in my big fat book, uh, did a text on this notion, which I even use as the title of my book, Absolute Recoil, and he claims that because Derrida also reads that passage, but reads it in a way which he accuses Hegel. Okay, the point this guy tries to make is that what Hegel claims with this notion of absolute recoil is precisely what Derrida claims that Hegel cannot do. Hegel's claim of absolute recoil is that it's not only this pseudo-dialectical circle, you have to lose a thing then to regain it again, but that the thing itself emerges only through its loss. The loss comes first. Absolute recoil means that it's only by way of recoil, losing itself, then what is, you know that, the loss, to put it like this, the loss precedes what is lost. And this guy convinced me how, and it's the beautiful paradox, the same as with Hegel, that in his what Derrida sometimes missed in his reading of Hegel is not some other dimension for which he is stupid, but the very Derridaan dimension of Hegel. And this is typical for dialectics. For example, uh, as Fred Jameson in a very nice way pointed out, uh, what Hegel missed in contemporary society, it's not some otherness, but it's precisely the Hegelian dimension of capitalism. Hegel still conceived of capitalism in this, you know, artisans, Adam Smith, market, and so on. But where capitalism becomes really Hegelian, with what Marx describes as the speculative circular movement, money begetting more money, all that stuff, which Marx describes in a purely Hegelian way. Hegel misses that. So that's, for me, the more a more intelligent critique of Hegel. He didn't miss some otherness. He missed the Hegelian nature of the phenomenon he was describing. So, as you can see, if what I told you now appears confused, it's because it is confused. The, the things are very subtle here. I don't think... That's the problem. You know, both Hegel and Derrida are... They both have a certain circularity for which they are criticized. And it's interesting how often they are attacked for the same point. The usual Hegelian critique of Hegel is, he's so tricky that whatever you say, he will tell you, but this is already accounted in my system as one figure and so on. And the approach to Derrida is often the same one, that he will pull the same trick and so on. But... Uh, in a way, maybe this is true, but again, that's why, uh, that's why I think, again, that it's a very tricky question. I mean, what I, this is a personal remark, I don't know how you relate to it, what I 
don't like at the level of style in some Derrida is like you know a typical mid in his mid term the middle term of his career Derrida sometimes did like this like you have a text on something but instead of going to the point you have to go through this first 25 30 pages of all these rhetorical pirouettes am i writing this text or am i written by this text and all that stuff like sometimes i have like fuck off go to the point and then he does get to the point and it's as a rule a very good point for example this is derrida at his hegelian best his reading of kafka and the law door of the law where he notices something which is, I claim, absolutely crucial for how authority functions today. That law is not only an agency of prohibition, but it's itself prohibited. You know, law doesn't only prohibit. And that this he makes, because they didn't like each other too much, he makes here a very precise, how to call it, stab at Foucault, who talks about all this you know traditional uh, prohibitory functioning of law, which is then superseded by regulatory functioning of law, and so on and so on. No, but there is then a third dimension about which I think Foucault doesn't write a lot. A lot. You know, this paradox of how at its most fundamental dimension, prohibition itself has to be prohibited. And I'm sorry if I repeat myself a little bit. I mean this literally. This is maybe the mystery of our so-called permissive societies. It's not that there are no prohibitions. It's that prohibitions themselves are prohibited. And this is happening. This, there are so many examples here that I find. Don't be afraid if I'm getting lost. I didn't forget my promise to you that uh, through Julia, who will hopefully stay here till New Year, I will... Uh, you will get the stuff. If my, that, uh, 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 this, again, prohibiting the prohibition uh, itself. Many women complained about this, how men treat them. Like, uh, uh, we have officially, we all respect women and so on. But then if a woman brings out where she still feels oppressed, it's as if she said some obscenity, you know. This is how male chauvinism functions today. You know, when a woman says, but nonetheless, you did oppress me there, 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 it's done as if she said something that shouldn't be said, but uh, let me give you another, I'm sorry if I repeat myself here, much better example from Stalinism. I know I often use this here. In Stalinism, it's not that there were simply prohibitions. The crucial point is that these prohibitions were themselves prohibited. Like the example I like to use, I'm sorry if I repeat myself. Let's, let's say that we are here, ha, 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 Central Committee in 35 in Moscow. Let's say that one of you is so stupid after the end, I am Stalin, of course, I give a report to the Central Committee, then there is a debate, of course. Okay, one of you stands up and attacks me. That's not a good idea. Next day, the big question will be who saw him last alive, of course. But that's still okay. Let's say that another of you then stands up 
and defends me, Stalin, and attacks that guy, claiming, but are you crazy? Don't you know we don't criticize Stalin here and so on? I can guarantee you he will disappear even sooner. You see the point. It was not only prohibited to criticize Stalin. It was absolutely prohibited to announce, pronounce publicly this prohibition. And Every legal system, it's not just Stalinism, plays in this way. Like, let's return to my religious transcendental experience, the Yugoslav army, which I served. No, I will not tell you all those paradoxes that I repeated too much about the guy who obtained an order to swear freely and so on, military oath, but a more interesting one. In the Yugoslav army, in the constitution and army rules, it was said that all languages of Yugoslav nations, which were officially equal, are legal in the army. This meant Serbo-Croat, at that point they were unified, Slovene, Albanian, Kosovo, and Macedonian. The constitution says only that, only at the level of pure commandment, only Serbo-Croat should be used, which is incidentally understandable. You cannot say, I don't know, uh, in six languages, shoot, fire, or whatever. <laughs> but de facto, it was only Serbo-Croat. Also, at everyday life, education, classes, and so on. So it was an absolutely obvious violation of the Yugoslav constitution. And now comes the trick. I didn't do it. I was too scared. A colleague of mine raised this question. He, he went to military prison a couple, for a couple of weeks. Just by stating the obvious, like, but listen, it says in the Constitution all languages are equal of Yugoslav nations. Why do we have all to speak Serbo-Croat? It's guaranteed in Constitution. You know, these examples I like of this, and again, Derrida, that's the whole point, similar examples and so on, of, Der, of Derrida's great text on Kafka. All these ambiguities in Freudian terms, superego or ideal ego, they're not the same, I know, and the id and so on, how law, law is not pure. In order to be operative, the law that fights obscenity or whatever, has to be sustained by its own kind of obscenity and all these, uh, all these paradoxes and so on and so on. So again, you see, I'm very much conf confused. Okay, there is maybe another thing that I disagree with Derrida. Uh, like uh, this, he took maybe this from, from uh, Heidegger. This a little bit eschatological thinking in the sense of we live in the time of the end of metaphysics, you know, this idea, the era of metaphysics is coming to an end. So, and then uh, I much prefer here, I must say this approach, which is that of Deleuze, Lacan, and Badiou, uh, which is more an eclectic approach on, you know, like you take whatever you want from history of philosophy and so on. Our era is not, uh, privileged in this way, because uh, you know where I found, my God, I'm sorry, I will stop soon, otherwise we will go crazy, but 
there is another problem that I didn't found, and maybe you can immediately correct me if I'm wrong in Derrida. On the one hand, he did assume this Heideggerian notion of an epoch of metaphysics of presence is approaching its end. But uh, then, uh, for example, okay, but then will we ever be able to step, you know, Derrida, I claim, and please, I would like to be enlightened here. My impression was that Derrida oscillated between two versions here. One is metaphysics of presence, or whatever you call this, ontoteleology and so on, is specifically Western phenomenon, Western metaphysics. And he preferred not to talk too much about what would be, I don't know, the ancient Chinese metaphysics, Indian, Latino American, and so on. But on the other hand, sometimes he writes as if there is no outside. However, we are, we are always within metaphysics and it's kind of an endless struggle to marking the difference, but never simple outside and so on and so on. So it was never clear to me with his apparatus of deconstructing uh, metaphysics of presence. What would he have done, for example, with ancient Chinese thought? Is it simply, is it also another version of metaphysics of presence, and we should play all these games, or is it simply a totally different universe? Even more complex, if it's a totally different universe, how can we say it and see it? You know, it's the same problem you find, incidentally, if you read him closely, already in Heidegger. Because officially Heidegger's line is that this strict, I want, uh, determinism is not a good term, but uh, radical historicism. Each epoch is an event, but in Heideggerian sense, grounded in a certain eventual disclosure of being. Modern epoch is epoch of subjectivity and so on and so on. But, for example, if we are part of this destiny of being, historically determined by a certain disclosure of being, how then is a figure like Hölderlin possible? Because it's clear that for Heidegger, Hölderlin saw beyond German idealist metaphysics. Heidegger is very clear here. Even his other beloved poets, like Rilke, they are still within the scope of modern metaphysics. Other German philosophers, Hegel, Schelling, or poets, Novalis, and so on, they are in, but uh, Helderlin broke out. How? So it is as if he has to admit that, as it were, exceptionally, we can, to put it in very naive terms, step out of the history of being, you know? Gain, and he gets very ambiguous here, Heidegger. This is Heidegger that interests me. The Heidegger that asks all these awkward questions, almost common sense questions. For example, Heidegger was not a stupid idealist. History of being is not some kind of divine power which creates entities, existing entities. No, he knows very well that, for example, when he says that beings always appear to us within a certain horizon of the meaning of being. He doesn't mean that uh, 
history of being, uh, that, uh, that what he calls event, a disclosure of being, creates entities. He says somewhere, quite naively even, that, of course, a chair or whatever, a moon object, exists independently of our history of being. They were there before human, there was humanity on Earth. But how to think that? And three, four times, from late 20s till one of his last works, Heraclit Seminar, he admits that he doesn't know how to approach it. His uh, most beautiful reflections are a kind of a almost mystique Benjaminian speculation, which is that uh, when human speech emerges, it was a cosmic event in the sense that it's a beautiful mystical speculation that there is a great suffering in animal kingdom. Life suffers. But only through human speech, nature was able to articulate its suffering, its pain. You know, that human speech also concerns in this sense, uh, in, I mean, uh, inhuman entities uh, like uh, uh, animals and so on and so on. But again, what's the status of it and so on and so on? This is where philosophy becomes, uh, becomes uh, interesting for me. Sorry, I've lost so much time, but fuck life. Okay, you and you. No, the, the dark guy, I want communism to win. You are dark, fascism, then I want you, red shirt, to win over. Sorry, please. Uh, having traversed this fantasy, why is necessary for the board subject to, to again become submissive to a new socio-symbolic order? Because this necessity is a priori, we cannot be satisfied only with empirical empirical example, for example, the description of what happens after, after revolutions. So what is this a priori necessity? This a priori? Yes, <coughs> necessity. Ah, ah the, you, you raised here a very good point, and uh, this you provided now, or you pointed in the direction of why I am a Hegelian. Because uh, your reproach, I think, hits a certain type of Marxism fighting alienation, you know. Yes, you know in what sense? In the sense, okay, I'll put it in another way, maybe you'll agree with this one. When you said traversing the fantasy, okay, the most easy way to squeeze out would have been said that this idea that we can live simply outside illusion, this is the ultimate fantasy. Traversing, from a strict Hegelian standpoint, Traversing fantasy means precisely renouncing the fantasy that you can step outside. Traversing fantasy means to accept the ontological necessity of an illusion. Hegel says this. I know, I know. But my question is, how is it that after you traverse our fantasy, how, uh, how is it that after you realize that you are not in a position to be a subject which posits object. Yeah. Yeah. After you realize this, uh, how is it that you have to, again, become submissive to a socio-symbolic order? It happens. I will tell you. And it is necessary, yeah. uh, a priori. I mean, it's not that we can, I mean, we cannot resort to empirical examples and say, 
uh, or you see that after, uh, even after authentic revolutions, a new established sy mm -hmm. symbolic order uh, happens, people, uh, uh, I mean, elapse into, uh, into inertia again, and so and my, my question is, how is it necessary? How this... I maybe, okay, maybe I wasn't convincing enough, but I think that precisely the whole point of Hegel is to provide this subtle answer to this question, subtle answer again in the sense that traversing the fantasy means exactly seeing the necessity of that new subvision, what you call it. The only thing that changes in traversing the fantasy, it's not that you are no longer submitted, that you see that there is no big other, which means that you are decentered, but the other is also decentered. This is, Hegel uses this term when he says a passage that I, maybe my favorite passage that I quote all the time, when Hegel says, the secrets of the ancient Egyptians, for us, we don't know what things meant, were also the secrets for the Egyptians themselves. The other also doesn't know it. You just, for Hegel, the only disalienation is redoubling of alienation. Where do you disagree? Uh, my, pro my, my problem is that you don't answer my question. Which is? Which is, how is it that after you yeah. realized all this, yeah. Again, the moment of uh, simple vulgarity will happen. How is it that after you traverse your fantasy, you, you do a big job? If this crucial moment doesn't coincide with your real death, mm -hmm. if you stay alive yeah. in the biological sense, again, you will become submissive to simple vulgarity without being really authentic. And it has to happen. Why is I, it? Uh, I, I, oh my God, there are so many principles. Again, we don't have time to go in detail into it now, but I would have said that, that uh, I find problematic, it's too radical in a bad sense, your reading of traversing the fantasy. As if this is a kind of a ulti ultimate, almost deathly liberation, and so on and so on. It's not this. Lacan is very precise here. Traversing the fantasy doesn't mean stepping out of the fantasy, in the sense of we are now free for some authentic being, and so on and so on. Lacan explicitly emphasizes this. Let's not read too much into it. Uh, be because, uh, uh, like, uh, again, I'm almost tempted to say that, and Hegel emphasizes this again and again, uh, the paradox is that how this is the deepest insight of what Lacan calls traversing the fantasy. How? Even if you see the untruth of something, you still have to live in it. You know, traversing of fantasy doesn't mean you get rid of an illusion. Traversing the fantasy means accept the necessity of illusion as illusion. That's the tension of traversing the fantasy. You learn that something is an... What's the difference between this and perversion? Oh, perv ah, that I can... If you use here the term perversion in the strict Freudian and Lacanian sense, it's easy to answer. A pervert doesn't... A pervert knows. 
pervert, doesn't live in you. Uh, perversion is the nastiest position that I can imagine, which is why, incidentally, the title, Pervert's Guide to Cinema. I had a conflict with Sophie Fiennes. I think it's theoretically a wrong one, because I'm not a pervert. As Lacan emphasizes all the time, a pervert fits perfectly every order of power. It's, it's obscene double. Lacan is here a great feminist because Lacan always emphasizes the true revolutionary dimension is in hysteria, not in perversion. So when you say pervert, you know what the basic pervert's position is? Hysteria as well as uh, uh, obsession and neurosis as its subspecies. Here Lacan closely follows uh, Freud's indication that obsessional neurosis is not another species. It's a subspecies of hysteria. It's just kind of an inner torsion of hysteria. The hysterical point is questioning. Hysteria is basically an attitude of questioning. Like, and even, what can even claim that hysteria is, my friend Mladen Dolar developed this nicely, that hysteria is Lacanian answer in Lacanian to Althusser's interpolation. No, interpolation is the social order which provides you with an identification. You are a woman, a teacher, whatever. The hysterical question is, as Lacan puts it very nicely already in his uh, seminar two and three, especially three on psychosis, why am I what you are saying that I am? No, this doubting, like, uh, like I, the society ideology provides a certain symbolic identity for me, even if I reject it. I am, I don't know, professor of philosophy, which I myself doubt that I am or whatever. But the hysterical question is, why am I that? Which means that, and here we have to clarify things so much. Ha, she doubts her identity so much that she rather <laughs> hysterical reaction. Sorry, I cannot resist being evil. But no, the point is this one, that, uh, which is why, you know, when Lacan speaks about the lost object of desire, people usually think that it's this boring postmodern bullshit, you know. Whatever we are grabbing, it's never that. The true object is always elsewhere. No, the original lost object is myself. The original hysterical experience for Lacan, and at the same time, the birth of subjectivity, and it's nicely described by the one who was also up to a point against Lacan, but here he was great, I think, Jean Laplanche did this a lot, of how, let's say you are a small child. You feel all the games that your parents, uh, brothers, sisters play with you. They see something in you. They play games with you. They want something from you. They project. But what are you for them? It's this perplexity. Why am I this object of desire for them? What do they see in me? And this questioning is the origin of it all. This is the original hysterical questioning. It's the self-questioning. Who am I? It's not simply what the other wants from me. It's not just some Levinasian impenetrable other. It's self-identity. What am I for others? And, uh, but perversion for Lacan and already Freud is precisely a pervert has answers. He doesn't have questions. Per a pervert is somebody who says, 
That's why I claim Stalinists were perverts. Because, uh, not because of the horrors they did, but because this is basic position of we are serving the people, which means we know be better than the people themselves. Do you know, Maria, that while you exited, I humiliated you? No, I said, no, this, is, this is the hysterical reaction and so I on. Knew, I, I, I knew what you were going to say, that's why I, I took the opportunity. To are you claiming that you are so bright yes. that you no, know? No, I'm claiming <laughs> that. You see, that's the tragedy of French Revolution. They said freedom to all, freedom to women, and then women can talk like this yeah. <laughs> to us men. I'm well, horrible. I wanted to hear more about uh, No, no, I will. Yeah, sorry, but no, 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 yeah, yeah. No, no, what I wanted to say is that that's why I like it. But I have to pretend that I'm a bad guy and that I find it humiliating that... Did you notice that in the last decades, all good books on Hegel are written by women, mostly? It's, it began with, uh, with that, how is it called? Not Catherine Malabou, my God, her name. I no, no, these are the last two, but there is another one. At this point, I missed her name. No, 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 no. Ah, did you notice this, to be evil towards Jacqueline Rose, how when she raised some points, Hegel, ah, 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 this was sisterly competition, you know, there. Okay, but let me go on. So it's that who wrote a book, my God, at this point, uh, Hegel, Hegel and the Critic of Metaphysics is the title of the book. Then... No, you don't know, because she's unknown now. Uh, then it's, uh, of course, Catherine Malabou, then it's Rebecca Comey, and so on. It's something incredible in on this, how the most sensitive readers of Hegel appear more and more to be women. And this, in spite of all the criticism of Lacan and so on, that he is a male chauvinist. Lacan here has nothing to be ashamed. I learned this even from my great enemy, um, uh, Elizabeth Rudinesco, who wrote that, uh, you know, they claim Lacan normativity of uh, heterosexuality, blah, blah. I'm sorry, from the very beginning of the Lacanian school, gays were totally, simply without any question, accepted as analysts, while all others, IPA and so on, did this only, I don't know when, late 60s and so on. Lacan was by far, Lacanian school, the first which didn't make any problems by this. So, okay, but nonetheless, sorry, and then I go to Hegel. To return to your point, uh, in this sense, no, uh, it's not, it's not a, a perverse position, because a pervert is the one who knows. A pervert has the one who basically assumes this position of a pervert is pretends to be your pretends to be your servant, but your servant in the sense of, I know better when I serve you, I can terrorize you because I know better than you what is good for you, and so on and so on. And I think that when Lacan says that in psychoanalysis, the analyst occupies the post of object small a, it means exactly the post of the void. Uh, it's not the one who knows, it's the one who is supposed to know, but he plays with this illusion of supposed to know. In reality, he knows very well that he doesn't know. I mean, uh, again, the perverse version of psychoanalysis would be you come to the analyst and the analyst knows the meaning of your symptoms. No, the great thing of psychoanalysis proper is that analyst 
just has to play with this. The analyst should embody your ignorance, not your knowledge. The analyst should just uh, uh, provoke you, confuse you. No, no, he doesn't know anything. I claim that even Lacan here maybe fell into a trap. Uh, what, namely, why did he... I never was convinced by this idea of short sessions, you know, three, four minutes, and I know I went through it. Like, if you were lucky, it was four minutes, no? Uh, I mean, uh, the idea of Lacan was this one. Most of the psychoanalytic session is blah, blah, blah. You lose time. Only at certain moments towards the end, you finally say the truth. So his idea was a beautiful terrorist one. Why don't we put the analyst under the pressure that it can end at any moment? And in this way, we will get to the, but to the, what, the, the element moment of truth faster. I don't think it works. I think we have this strange temporality where to say one true thing, you have to talk nonsense for 40 minutes. It's an illusory shortcut, I think, what Lacan, what Lacan, is, doing, what Lacan is doing there. But nonetheless, and then I didn't forget about the red savior, yes. To return to you, I know I didn't satisfy you, but you see, uh, uh, you see my point here, how to put it, uh, Gilles Goffet, an intelligent uh, reader of Lacan, who even, I think we should invite him here. Uh, John Kopczak invited him, which is a big surprise for French people. He's very fluent in, in English. He, he pointed out this dimension that uh, uh, what you learn in traversing the fantasy is that the illusion persists in reality even when, even after no one believes in the illusion but sees through it, you know. That the, 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 uh, the fantasy is precisely the fantasy of the illusion being dominated, founded by some agent and so on. No, illusion, there are nameless illusion, there are beliefs which function even if no one believes in them, which means even if we are all cynical about them. This, this, this is for me what happens after traversing the fantasy. Okay, I didn't satisfy you, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry. But it's a very serious question, but I will admit something now, that the question that you touched here, it's a crucial one because it's a warning against this, let's call it, transgressive notion of analysis, you know, we step out, and if, this is why Lacan later dismissed, didn't like, his seminar on ethics, which is for me too close to Georges Bataille, in the sense, it is said we live in ordinary vulgar times, usually, but from one moment to the other, we can gain access to that prohibited domain of the primordial horror, but you cannot survive long there, you return to your ordinary reality. This transgressive notion of what uh, Bataille would have called inner experience or whatever, momentary blinding transgression is... No, uh, I think that uh, I am... Uh, my answer to you would be this one. The authenticity of traversing the fantasy would be, now I'm just translating into this language the political point that would, would be, I don't care about these authentic experiences. You said correctly that after we return to the same vulgar bullshit, 
is it totally the same or not? My hope is that maybe it's just not as shitty as it was before. Because it, now, now I'm simply repeating the point uh, of revolution, you know. I hate this, Tahrir Square, one million people singing there and so on. What interests me is, was there a change when things returned to normal afterwards in Egypt? And I'm not a total pessimist. People usually say, no, now it's the same shit as before. No, it's not. Because uh, civil society, student, women, all these movements are there. You know, it's up. There is civil society alive. This is the result of Tahrir Square and so on. You know, it's not as simple as that. So again, I think that the question you raised is an, an absolutely crucial one, even politically, to redeem us from these standard leftist dreams of, you know, in a revolution, all these standard oppositions will be overcome, sex will become life, daily life will become sexual, uh, whatever. And, and this is why I like, it will appear late spring, this volume, uh, Fred Jameson, An American Utopia, and then I edited 10 people replying to him, because all these taboos are wonderfully broken by Jameson. He claims, no, there will be divisions even stronger in communism, if we can even imagine it. He claims envy will be absolutely the big problem of communism, and so on. There will be, he even says at some point, I like this, there will be more hatred and violence in communism than in our societies. You know why? Be precisely because, eh, I can return here to your question. I'm sorry if I repeat my old stuff, but a reactionary guy like Friedrich Hayek made one wonderful observation, apropos markets. People reproached him for saying that, uh, 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 that he doesn't see, Hayek, how unjust market is. Like, market is not the best wins, but you know all these stories. You work hard, your neighbor does nothing, then the neighbor is lucky because of some economic events, and you lose it all, your lazy neighbor becomes rich. Hayek has an interesting answer here. He says, but that's why capitalism works. He means this, and it's a modest but intelligent observation, almost Lacanian. The true horror would have been a just capitalism. Because then, if I'm poor and you, Maria, are rich, are you secretly rich? Okay, but okay. Uh, then, then uh, I would have to admit that, because we live in a just society, that, you are, that it's my fault. But this injustice of capitalism allows me to suffer defeat by blaming the other. Like, oh no, you are a stupid bitch, you were just more lucky, you know? And because, you know, without, if people were to believe that capitalism is just, envy would have exploded. It would have been for me intolerable to see in your success my stupidity daily embodied and so on and so on. In, this is what my good friend Jean-Pierre Dupuy, that theorist of catastrophe, develops as a wonderful critique of John Rawls. He claims that Rawls' theory of justice works only if you exclude envy. You know, because you know what Rawls' formula, no? Rawls' formula is inequalities should be permitted, but A, if they are really the result of your hard work, like I get more money than you, but because I work harder, I'm more bright and so on, and B, if 
my wealth also helps makes the situation of those lower than me, especially those at the bottom, to live better. Like, I can be richer than you if my being richer makes also all of you, especially the poorest, a little bit better. And Dupuy has a wonderful answer. No, this would have been a terrifying situation of envy. Because in this Rolsian just society, can you imagine what a humiliating situation this would have been for the poor people? They would have to admit all the time that they are idiots, that the rich are just where to be rich, and so on and so on. So I would say that, that uh, 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 you, you see, this is this type of traversing the fantasy means precisely accepting this contingency of the other. It doesn't really, and this is why I think that, this is why I like, again, Protestantism. Protestantism accepts this. That's why the lady who I think is a theologist who wanted to debate the last time uh, 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 isn't here. To, uh, namely, Protestantism, with its theory of uh, predestination. What is predestination? It's, let's cut the crap, it's ultimate, almost evil contingency of God. God, some of us are redeemed, others are condemned to eternal suffering before we even exist. It's a totally contingent game of God. And uh, intelligent uh, Protestants accept this even as the other secret side of divine evil. You know, that God is ultimately not a just God, but an arbitrary God. In other words, usually Protestants talk about divine mystery. We don't know why God did that, predestination. The radical Protestant answer is, God was just stupid or evil. There is no reason. I mean, something along these lines we should do. Sorry, let's go on. Red flag, raise the, hide the flag of communism. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I have many questions, but I will limit to, to one. We will to, ah, I would like to hear from you. I have many questions, but I will limit myself to ten or whatever. <laughs> no, no, let's yeah, squeeze yeah. it. My God, well, because uh, I talk too much. I promise tonight you will get it, the text. My God, it's one hour and twenty. Okay, sorry. The tweet. It's quite naive, but um, um, we, we were talking before about um, homosexuality and... Uh, in the army. So in the army and sublation. Yeah. And it's also, um, I mean, it's about less than nothing, because you conceive it as a kind of sex between Hegel and Lacan. Do I say this? N no. I don't think I say uh, this. Isn't it in the form? This, this, this is what I wanted to ask you, because you have... But if you want to translate this term, isn't it clear that I want to screw both of them? <laughs> yes. I mean, I want yeah, yeah. to... It's no, a subtle <laughs> distanciation of the book towards Hegel. There is that chapter. Move the last chapter in the Hegel part is beyond Hegel, and at the end I also go into all this, which I think is the correct reading. How you know I'm opposed to this reading that at the very end Lacan had some final shattering insight. No, I think Lacan reached a certain point of 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 a deadlock around seminar twenty, and then what he did later were just failed attempts to, 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 to come out of, to resolve this deadlock. And his very last seminars, the short ones, five pages the whole year, are very tragic because he basically, I quote one of the passages, openly admits his utter failure. 
I think it's much more tragic, the fate of Lacan. I also like this as a general reading of thinkers. I don't think... I think thinkers are a little bit like Shakespeare's games. You have this lowest point of dark tragedies, and then you get in Shakespeare, you know, that final turn towards, how do you call them, these late games. It's a totally different universe, like fairy tales, blessing, you know, winter tale, tempest, and so on. But the truth is that dark, or even in Mozart operas, it goes down, down, Don Giovanni down, Così fan tutte, the most desperate, then what can you do after Così fan tutte, magic flute, pure bliss. I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I mean, I just wanted to, to say if this is, might be correct, reading that there is kind of, uh, there is a non-sexual relationship between them, and from Lacanian point, it's love, no, not that, only it's, love that feels yeah. it, but from Hegelian no, uh, point... No, here I it. refer to the guy, I hope they will translate some of his stuff, Guy Le Goffet, whom I quote, where uh, he... Uh, in such a nice way, I envied him so much, like, fuck you, why didn't I do that, you know, this, discover this. He draws, a he introduces a certain wonderful distinction, claiming that Lacan, that uh, sometimes it's not the same thing to say there is no sexual relationship and there is a non-relationship. And... All the last Lacan hinges on this oscillation, you know, which incidentally, if some of you know philosophy, it's very close to the beautiful Kantian distinction between uh, two types of negation. You know, I've repeated this often. This is even, I claim, the key to the notion of subjectivity. You know, Kant distinguishes between, between negative and infinite judgment. Negative, a negative judgment simply denies a predicate. Like, I am not dead. I negate a predicate, which simply means I'm alive. No? Okay. Then, the infinite judgment you do just something very simple. Instead of denying, negating the predicate, you affirm a non-predicate. Like, instead of saying, I am not dead, you say, I am undead. My God, if you know Stephen King and so on, you know that this is not at all the same thing. Because uh, I am not dead remains within this opposition of dead alive. But I am undead. That's why Kant calls it infinite. Judgment opens up a third domain of living dead. Undead means uh, as dead you are alive. Undead doesn't negate being dead. But you remain alive as dead. And I think it's the same with this non-relationship. If we say just there is no sexual relationship. Then we get this kind of a pagan vulgarity, you know. There is an eternal struggle between masculine and feminine principle. There is no ultimate harmony among them. That's nothing. That's bullshit. And Gilles Goffet is right when he hints that even Miller, the great interpreter of Lacan, makes this mistake sometimes. For example, when he interprets Il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel as simple 
how to put it, disharmony, like he says, imagine, he does it in a pretty vulgar way, Miller, even I, with my bad taste, find this vulgar. He says, with all the obvious sexual innuendos, it's like if vagina is a, how to call it, keyhole. Penis is never the ideal key to open the keyhole, they never fit. But this is not it. This is simply eternal struggle, disharmony, and so on. This is part of classical mythology. What Lacan is saying by his Il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel is something much more radical. The contradiction, I developed this, read my big fat book that you mentioned, is not... First, it's very interesting. Alenka Zupantrich, my friend, corrected me here and pointed out. Did you notice... We all the time speak about sexual difference and so on. Did you notice a very strange thing? My God, I was so mad at her again. Fuck her, why didn't I observe this? Not once does Lacan use the term sexual difference. No, he is not in this domain. For Lacan, uh, if you read his formulas of sexuation, it's not that there is an eternal disharmony between masculine, feminine position. No. The disharmony, the rupture, disparity, is within its, its position. You know, it's twice missed identity. It's as if almost for Lacan, there is one sex and there are two ways to fail to be that sex. It's a it's, again, Lacan has, because the moment you go into this eternal disharmony and so on, eternal struggle of sexes, then you are at the level of Da Vinci Code and so on. Like, you know, we in the West emphasize too much the masculine rational principle. We should bring back, you know, Jesus screwing Virgin, or no, Virgin Mary was his mother, that's too much. Mary Magdalene or whatever, you know, all that stuff about bringing in the feminine element, which is, I think, the worst thing that can happen for feminism. Because the way, if you bring in the feminine element in this way, re-establishing some sacred feminine and so on and so on, you just return to this classical dualism where women precisely always lose. Like, maybe already told you the story, I read a wonderful report on some, I don't know where, tribe, where even the big goddess was a feminine one. You know, like it was a village, houses, and then the central sacred hut place was formed like a vagina. Ooh, how subversive and so on. Yes, there was just one tiny problem empirically. Women were prohibited to enter that sacred place, you know. No, I believe that, again, the only way to be a feminist is to go through Descartes, to accept this, let's call it, desexualization of nature. No, sexual difference is not just an application to humans of some eternal... Uh, so again, back to your point, I would say what I will apply, I didn't lose my thread, exactly the same formula. I would have said that there is a non-relationship within Hegel and within Lacan. They both screw it up. So it's not... It's definitely, of course, not a matter of bringing them together. And I especially emphasize this because we Lacanians are often accused of being dogmatic and so on and so on. I had many fights with followers of Judith Butler concerning this, and they always claim, like, why are you such a dogmatic? 
and I tell them, okay, I can immediately enumerate to you passages where I clearly point at unresolved problem in Lacan. Lacan, show me one passage in your work where you do the same to Judith Butler. And uh, this, oh, with my friend, Avital Ronel. I don't even know it. I had a wonderful experience in uh, Sasfe. She was giving a talk on Wagner and Nietzsche. And her point was to, uh, her point was to uh, praise Nietzsche for breaking with Wagner, claiming that the authentic lesson of the pupil is to betray his master. You know, the young Wagner, sorry, the young Nietzsche was pupil faithful of Wagner, then he broke with Wagner, no? And then something so wonderful happened. The, my eternal gratitude goes here to Alain Badiou, who just asked her, okay, your master teacher is Derrida. Where did you break with Derrida? And it was so ridiculous because he caught, he caught her, as they say, with her pants down, without, no? Like, it was totally unexpected, and her defense was empirical one. Like, no, you haven't to take it literally. Sometimes you don't have to. <laughs> Horror. Then Sam Weber, the old Deridian, uh, was there, and he did the most ridiculous defense of her and Derrida that you can imagine. He said, but Derrida is an exception because... He is already so self-critical, all the time betraying himself, that we don't, he is already doing that job. And then I exploded and told him, you sound like Yugoslav communists when they were in power. Because you know what was their reply when you were a dissident? They said, but don't you see that we as creative self-management communists, we are already self-critical all the time. The way to be critical is to join us, you know, not to criticize us from outside and so on and so on. So, uh, in, so uh, in other words, I think that today, if you ask me, I wonder if you would agree, when it's so fashionable, you know, like nobody wants to be identified, even when you make a simple statement. It's good to say, maybe strategically, we can risk the hypothesis that things are like that. You shouldn't even fully identify with what you claim. I almost think that today the subversive thing would be to adopt a kind of a simply dogmatic attitude. And they're like, you can criticize Lacan and Hegel. I am for Lacan and for Hegel. They were both right and so on. Of course, there are empirically problems, like they were not right. And, but but my, point is that, uh, my point is that there is something so false about this signaling that you don't fully agree with yourself. Why are you talking them? Today, I gave an interview for some BBC series of Marx where a nice lady was asked me, but isn't there in Marx's Communist Manifesto something extremely arrogant? He claims to provide there, as he says, that communism is the solution of the riddle of the entire history, like as if he knows everything and so on and so on. But I told her, but isn't every philosopher who writes a book adopting exactly the same arrogance? Let's say you wrote a book. Either you are bluffing or you wrote it because of ontology, 
you wrote it because in some way you think that you propose that all others, from Plato to Hegel to Wittgenstein, ultimately didn't see what you see and you have the ultimate answer. Let's you know, in some way, I think, dogmaticism is a heroic act because you honestly open yourself up to criticism. You say, yes, I am this, and here you can attack me. While all that sleazy stuff, I say this, but only strategically, maybe it's not like that, and so on and so on. It's the worst kind of arrogance. Basically, you are saying secretly, I'm always a little bit brighter than, 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 I, than I appear to be, you know. Okay, sorry, you, did you finish your question? Yeah, I mean... But, okay, let's be fair. Do others have some questions? Uh, you? Okay, first, uh, lady in the middle and then the bearded guy. Like, you remind me of who are those? This is a loving statement. Who are old? You know, did you meet, do you know Robert Brandom, about whom I talked? Check his image. Isn't he like those hobo pictures in, 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 in Lord of the Rings and so on or whatever? No? I, it, I was so shocked, like you were the guy who embodies a kind of a dark magician and he's preaching this, you know, discursive logic and so on. Sorry? Yeah, he's even worse or what? Yeah, but it's not just a beard, it is the beard, you know. And also the way he said, who is also in Harry Potter, that big fat bearded guy who... Sorry? Yeah, isn't Brandon something like... <laughs> okay, sorry. So, first the lady, then you, please. Uh, I just want to go back to the idea of deconstruction and which you spoke about the subject. So, if you can uh, uh, think in terms of, you know, what Derrida says about the trace and the structure of time yeah. in his idea of the trace, uh, that's the first question. And, you know, in terms of the simultaneous idea of spatialization and temporalization. And if you can also... Uh, link that up, the structure of the trace and temporality with his idea that deconstruction is law. Or uh, even say inspectors when he says that you know, ideology in a certain sense is a necessary error. And do you see a connection hence between the early Derrida, what he says in grammatology, and the ethical term? And do you see Maybe I'm wrong. I'm very open here. I try not to bluff all the time. But I precisely think that this passage, even if we agree with it or not, is not necessary. I think that this passage to, let's call it, deconstruction as law, infinite task, uh, justice as the goal, that it's not a, a necessary passage. That it introduces a certain, no matter how much radicalized, let's call it, I would almost have said, and Derrida even once or twice, gently hinted that you, it's almost a kind of a Kantian regulative idea, you know, the endless task of deconstruction, we never finish it, and so on and so on. I, 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 seem, I know what Derrida is after. I mean, the early Derrida was often misinterpreted as a kind of a big joker, you know, deconstruction, like everything is a game, double meaning, blah, blah. In this sense, I fully agree with his let's call it ethico-political term, term in 
pointing out at this, my God, deconstruction for me, also when people think deconstruction is some playing games with words and so on, deconstruction, authentic deconstruction, which means inquiring in detail how a certain theoretical edifice undermines itself, how it has to self-contradict itself. This is for me an extreme high practicing of reason, even argumentation. If there is a philosopher who is not an irrationalist, is Derrida. I think Habermas is here ridiculously wrong in accusing Derrida of, or all that, you know, my bad guy is not so much Habermas as Richard Wallin, you know, who would like now to criminalize Heidegger and so on, and for whom deconstruction is a kind of a justification of collaboration with fascism and so on. But, uh, okay, I'm I admit too confused now to answer you in detail, but uh, but what I would have said is that that what you described now as all this topic, uh, temporalization of space and all that, this exactly, I will just provide a statement, is I think what is the ultimate secrecy of the Freudian notion of drive. Drive, desire is already this, Teleological. Even if you have lost object of desire, but you know, it's a void, okay, but we run after the object of desire, we always meet it and miss it and so on and so on. While drive is something different. As I try to develop in some of my books, the object of drive is not simply lost. The true object of drive is loss itself. The, and also, at another level... Even death drive is not here Ernesto Laclau, when I had the polemics with him, he totally misses the point, I think. When he speaks about how we cannot have radical death drive, that would have meant uh, self-destruction, but just uh, always that death drive is always attached to certain partial objects, whatever. But my point is, but this is drive. The primordial experience of drive is and. Uh, some Deridians and some Hegelians, like the big couple, they are not connected sexually, don't misunderstand me, but the two good Hegelians now, Rebecca Comey and, ah, ah, now I'm Da Vinci, we had the masculine counterpole to her, Frank Ruda, the German guy. They will now publish a little bit of propaganda in the series that I co-edit with my friend Shortcuts, the most wonderful book on Hegel that you can imagine. It will be about the two hyphens in Hegel. First, Ruda, no, first, uh, Rebecca will do, you know, at the very, that quote from Schiller at the very end of phenomenology. There is a hyphen in Schiller which Hegel obliterates. And she wrote 80 pages about why. Excellent text. Then Frank Ruda goes to the hyphen at the very beginning of Hegel's logic. Not introduction, but logic proper. Well, Hegel says, being, hyphen, pure being, reines sein, and nothing else. Like, what happens in between? What does it mean to pass from being to pure being? It's mad. But what I wanted to say is that both of them now wrote wonderful short texts, uh, uh, reasserting Hegel as the thinker of resistance, 
procrastination, like the usual reproach to Hegel is, in Hegel always things run all too smoothly, you know, the process goes on. But what if things get stuck? What if you get fixated and so on? Triumphantly, they redeem Hegel, especially with regard to the notion of resistance. Uh, Rebecca Comey does a wonderful analysis here where Again, I'm mad at her because she brings out something that I would like to observe, but it didn't. This deep ambiguity, in a very Deridaan way, she demonstrates how necessary it is because, incidentally, Derrida already noticed it. The ambiguity in our everyday use of the very word resistance. On the one hand, it's resistance in, let's, under quotation marks, good sense. Resistance against fascism, against imperialism, fighting against. But resistance also means there is progress, let's say feminism, but some old patriarchal jerks resist it. You know? So resistance is the same word which signals at the same time resisting the established system and the very inertia of this system. And she goes... Uh, then wonderfully, okay, into details, but the main point in this one, how? What I already improvised, I think, yesterday, even at the beginning. How? The whole Hegelian dialectical process, as it's exemplified in so-called infinite judgments, is based on this things get stuck. No, the process doesn't run smoothly. You get stuck, and then in order to get out of, you know, uh, all progress is a reaction to getting stuck, if I may put it like this. That's even, uh, even, uh, even at the very beginning, I think Frank Rudas uh, develops this, at the very beginning of Hegel's logic, the first triad, uh, being, nothing, becoming. Being, being, fuck it, being, you get stuck. And nothing is the fact that you got nothing of it. You got stuck, you know. Like, again, it's not things are running smoothly. The entire Hegelian or French Revolution, things got stuck at terror. And then you desperately try to... So, uh, again, uh, I think what Freud calls drive is precisely this minimum of getting stuck, as it were. You know, like... Life, and this is a wonderful idea which also explains the ambiguity of the notion of resistance, that uh, uh, the true, I use consciously these naive terms, spirit begins not with some unheard of dynamics, but when things get stuck. Like, what is human sexuality? Okay, animals do it, but it's clearly part of the flow of things, of life. Oh my God, it's spring, mating season. Ooh, I do all the sounds to attract females with screw. It's just part of some standard run of things. What does sexual passion mean? You get stuck. Instead of say, okay, now we screwed, small rabbits are on the way, we go on hunting, whatever. No, you get stuck on that, but I still want you. It has no evolutionary function, but I insist on it. The idea, and even at the level of behavior, my good friend, one of the top uh, brain scientists, told me even at an empirical level how the, he is doing analysis of ape behavior. 
And he told me how if you give to an ape two primate, two, how do you call them, she apes, whatever, female apes, one is obviously more attractive than the other. The ape is much more plastic free than men. First, the ape, male ape, tries to get the attractive one. When he doesn't, without any problem, the ape moves to the second one. But the specifically human thing would be that your very, the very impossibility to get the beautiful ape would stuck you onto that one. Like when something become, gets out of your reach, you don't say, fuck it, I cannot get it, let's move elsewhere. No, you remain stuck on that. This stuckness is maybe the Freudian term for, for change, which is why even socially, things don't, like today, we live in, in an extremely dynamic society, late capitalism, uh, all the time new products, everything is in flux and so on. How will things really change when they will get stuck? When, you know, things will no longer run smoothly and so on and so on. So back to you. Uh, at this level, as already hinted before, uh, especially, but we don't have time, of course, to go into it now, uh, because this is a very interesting topic philosophically, what you mentioned. I know from early Derrida this notion of Time, space, spacing of time, and vice versa. Yeah, one more thing is that you know, the very idea of coming back to the subject, the subject-centeredness, which, which was there. But I wouldn't say centeredness. I would say, again, that subject is the na a name for radical decenterment. That would be my point. Subject is simply the void of decenteredness. And even literally, you find this in some way already in Kant. Because the whole identity of the Kantian subject of pure apperception is that you are radically forever decentered from what you are as the thing in itself. And Kant openly approaches this problem in that mysterious part that I often quote, the very finale of uh, its very short second part of Critique of Pure Reason, where Kant says, uh, ask the obvious question, but why are we limited only to phenomenal domain? Why can't we get to know things in themselves? And Kant gives a crazy answer, that it's all part of the divine plan to, to make us ethical beings. Kant says that if we were to know how things really are, then we would all be good, because we would see what God wants, blah, blah, and we would be, how to put it, we would be ethical, we would act ethically, but not for right ethical reasons. It's simply, you see how things are, if I do something wrong, I'm punished, and so on. So we will be doing the right thing, but not in the Kantian ethical sense, not for the sake of duty, but because I don't know, I'm not stupid, I don't want to suffer. It's pure calculation. And Kant even goes a step further and says, if we human beings were to have access to things in themselves, we would turn into marionettes, marionetten, which is a crucial term used at the same time, you know, with Heinrich von Kleist and so on. So, you know, uh, Kant here in a beautiful way contradicts himself. The, the transcendental ego, this free self of self-apperception for Kant, is not the nomenal, as he sometimes claims. No, it's 
pure self, of course, it's not an empirical self. You don't encounter it. But it, it exists as a self-relating void only in the phenomenal universe. If self were to be able to transgress phenomenal universe and know itself as a thing in itself, it would be a marionette, not a, a, not a free self. So again, I would say that you can see how the very base of Kantian subject is this absolutely constitutive decenterment. The self is inaccessible to itself in its normal, and that's what makes it a free self. If you, paradoxically, if you were to get to know too much how things are in themselves, you would become a marionette. You would no longer be, I, I don't, I'm not saying I, I'm not saying I agree with it. I just effectively think that one can think subject as Precisely, that's how I read Hegel's subject is not a substance. Because when people read Hegel as asserting some kind of a absolute subject which generates everything and so on and so on, they are simply making subject a kind of a mega substance. And that's incidentally why I disagree with Charles Taylor. I not only envy him, because fuck them, did you read in the news a month ago? Habermas and Taylor got some big prize, each of them million dollars and so on. My God. Okay, but I'm, I wouldn't protest. What I'm saying is that Charles Taylor reads Hegel precisely in this wrong way. As if Hegelian absolute subject means that beneath us empirical egos, there is some kind of absolute master subject who pulls the strings and so on, all that. No, Hegel is absolutely not this. Hegel says explicitly in phenomenology and other places that the only reality there is is our finite reality. The absolute doesn't mean there is another sphere of eternal. All that happens, happens here. Sorry, but I know. So again, going back to my point, my point would have been that this uh, idea of uh, trace, space, time, and so on, getting stuck, I would connect it to it. This would have been something, again, where I, as already answered previously, where I would have been looking for a link between Deridean difference. I think difference is simply Deridean name for this getting stuck, you know, like for this absolutely self-immanent obstacle. The problem is not that we cannot reach God. The problem is that we cannot reach ourselves, that we cannot fully be ourselves. And this does not imply that we, that there is a true self. This is Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, that uh, of course there is a substantial unconscious which we cannot reach. No, there is nothing beyond. It's simply this pure inaccessibility. Uh, and, but uh, the Lacanian trick here is that to claim that this inaccessibility, I cannot be fully myself, is the very resource of my self-identity in the sense of that self-identity is always self-identity in Hegelian sense of this minimal... <coughs> you know, Hegel knows this very well. That's why Hegel, be careful here, he introduces the term identity only... <coughs> 
at the beginning of the second volume of Logic of Logic of Essence, which means identity is for Hegel already a reflexive category. You are not, identity doesn't mean that you are simply what you are. Okay, even if I say this, I already say too much. Identity means that, uh, that uh, identity always implies a certain radical difference. That's what I wanted to hint yesterday when I talked about that inclusion, exclusion that Brandom doesn't get. Identity means that beyond all my positive properties, I am something. That something is nothing, and that's my identity. Identity names a hole in you, which is why identity is ultimately that of a personal name. If I want to, you know, if I want to designate you as a self-identical individual, I say your name. But I cannot, here we should be against Bertrand Russell, we cannot translate this name into a list of properties. I, you know what is identity? Let me repeat an old joke and then we conclude. I'm, life is shit, I'm falling apart. Uh, uh, I'm sorry for repeating this joke, but this is the logic of identity, Hegelian. Uh, imagine a species divided into subspecies. And then you have a certain subspecies in which species encounters itself. You know, like, for example, Marx, he used the Hegelian term, uh, uh, gegensätzliche oppositional determination. He says that you, we have four elements of, uh, of economic process. We have production, distribution, ex I hate this, people like Production, distribution, uh, 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 exchange, and consumption. But Marx says in a very Hegelian way that all these four together are constitute the production process. So production is at the same time the all-encompassing production and an element of itself. Marx uses this wonderful Hegelian term that production encounters itself among its species as its own oppositional determination, gegensätzliche Bestimmung. So, okay, I will show you how this works. I'm sorry if you know it. An old, wonderful Polish anti-communist joke that I quote often in my books. Just bear in mind that uh, socialism claimed to be the highest achievement of humanity, the synthesis of all highest results of past history of humanity. So they claim this, socialism in Poland at that point is the synthesis of all greatest achievements of humanity. From primitive societies it took barbarism, from ancient societies it took slavery, from medieval society it took domination, from capitalism it took uh, exploitation, and now comes the beauty, you guess it, from socialism it took the name. <laughs> But you see the point, that's the point of identity. Whereas Lacan puts it in a wonderful way, an, uh, an, uh, uh, the, the signifier falls into the signified. You need the signifier to guarantee the identity. That's, that's identity. So again, the, in this sense, I'm returning to identity. Identity is precisely the name for this radical reflexive split or self-different. Identity means 
is literally decontradictory in order to be identical to yourself, you have to reach that void, like socialism is the greatest shit in the history of humanity, but then you say, but there it's only a name. No, and this is the big problem that already, and Derrida knew it, he wrote about it. Uh, how this is what Hegel is struggling in the second chapter of phenomenology on does think, the thing and its properties. How difficult it is to, to, to define what is a thing beyond, above its properties. It's too easy to say it's just a synthesis of these properties. But in what sense it is a synthesis? And Kegel knew it very well. Even evolutionary uh, biologists confirm him today. That, uh, uh, you know, things get complicated when you have the self-identity of a living being. Because there, like, uh, there, uh, you can clearly distinguish between properties and the thing. Like, I'm an animal, I have a hand. But if you chop off that hand, in some sense, I still am an animal and so on. You know, like, what properties are constitutive in, like, are you simply your properties and or are you something more? The Lacanian sense is, no, you are nothing more. But this nothing is just not just an answer. This nothing is the point of self-reflection and so on and so on. Sorry, I propose that we end, no? And I promise, I promise that I will, if you want it, that I will send you the, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Yeah, the uh, Hobbit, Hobbit will remain. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Did you really meet Brandom? I just saw him, yeah, okay, yeah. No, because it always interested me. I saw some scenes, interviews by him on YouTube, and the surprise is that, you know, he speaks totally as a normal guy. Like, it's not the voice you expect from that monstrous figure. You know, you know what I mean? I also, okay, thanks very much. Let's call it a day. Thank you.